Welcome to today's broadcast of Front Porch Talks. I'm Grayson Willis. Today's broadcast is a live teaching session called Teaching Church that took place here at Harrisonburg First Church of the Nazarene on Thursday, November 21st for a group of pastors and leaders from the Virginia District Church of the Nazarene. In today's edition of the Teaching Church, Pastor Adrian Mills came and led a devotional. He was followed by lead pastor of Charlottesville First Church of the Nazarene, Bud Reedy, who led a discussion on mentorship. And then we wrapped up our time sharing different ideas that we're doing at our churches during the Christmas season. This morning, I want to share with you an invitation. Uh, it's an invitation that comes from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. And um, it's an invitation that's timely. Um, in fact, this time of the year, when we talk about Thanksgiving, when we talk about gratitude, maybe this is uh, a message that you have preached or are preaching soon, or you've heard preached in your churches. It's an invitation. Uh, it's really more than that, because it's a command, um, but it's an impossible command. Um, you ever thought about that, that the Bible is filled with commands that uh, in and of themselves seem pretty impossible. And so uh, it's short, um, but it begins in 1 Thessalonians 5, 16-19. These are words you're familiar with. Um, but the Apostle Paul writes this, he says, Rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Do not quench the Spirit. Now, I, I don't know about you, and I don't know where you're tracking today and how your morning's been and how your week's been, but if he had said, rejoice often and pray a lot and try to be thankful, sign me up for that, because I can do that. Rejoice often. Yeah, I can, you know, I feel like if there's like a measurement tool, I rejoice more often than I don't. Pray a lot. I think I'm doing that. Yeah, I'm good. Try to be thankful. At least there's intent there to be thankful, right? Like I can try to be. I feel like if that's what Paul had said, then I'm doing good. But that's not what he says. He doesn't say rejoice often. He says rejoice always. He doesn't say pray a lot. He says pray continually. He doesn't say try to be thankful. He says give thanks in all circumstances. Oh. I uh, grew up in the church, and um, this kind of idea of God's will was always this kind of mysterious thing and this beautiful thing. As a teenager, pray for God's will. I want to be in God's will, but also to the point of even some fear of what if I, you know, what if I go to the wrong college and I'm out of God's will, and what if I eat the wrong thing for breakfast? And not not quite that bad, you know. But but that idea of like being paranoid of being out of the will of God. And I absolutely believe, this is another message for another day, I absolutely believe that God has uh, a perfect will for each one of us. He has a plan for your life. But then I, I think there's some things about God's will we don't, we don't have to ask. We don't have to wonder. And the beauty is um, that we're told that this is God's will for you. We don't have to, well, God, what's your will? Well, if you're a, a follower, Jesus Christ, it is his will for you to do these three things, to rejoice always, pray continually, and give thanks always in all circumstances. And maybe like me, you feel the weight of that. You feel the weight of that, not a suggestion, but a command. And you feel like me, that is impossible. Well, I think that's why 
Paul reminds us that this is God's will for you in Christ. That we do this in Christ. This is only possible in Christ. Uh, Adrian's strength, Adrian is not going to rejoice always. And and I'm not going to be mindful enough to pray continually. And I'm I'm not on my own strength going to give thanks in all circumstances. But if I'm in Christ... If I'm being sourced by Him, if I'm being led by Him, if if I identify with Christ, then these things become possible. And that's why, that's why I concluded with the very next verse where he says, Do not quench the Spirit. Those, it may seem like at the end of a letter, uh, Paul is just kind of emptying out the barrel of like random, like he's got post-it notes kind of that he's looking at. What other things do I need to tell him? Yeah, okay, rejoice always. And where was that other one? Yeah, yeah okay, pray continually. And uh, yeah, give thanks, and oh yeah, don't quench. It may just seem like he's just firing off random, uh, but but it's not. These are very connected because Paul is acknowledging that in your strength, if you're being sourced uh, by your strength, that this is an impossible command. But if you are being sourced by the Spirit, that is how these things become possible in our lives. Amen. We're being led by Him if we're being directed, and so. Paul is saying, do not quench the Spirit because it's the Spirit's power, it's the Spirit's leading in us that allows these three things to be possible. So, just briefly this morning, I want to look at these three commands and talk about what they mean for us today. What does it mean to rejoice always? Um, Recognize that these words are being written to believers that are facing persecution for their faith. Um, more than likely, they're first-generation believers, which means um, that they don't have the godly heritage. But even more than that, it means to profess Christ probably means they're being disowned by their family. Um, they're, they're taking great risk in order to be identified with Christ. Um, so they're probably being disowned by their family. They're, many are being beaten and dragged out into the street because they profess Christ as Lord. Uh, their property being seized from them. Uh, We know that as we read and understand more of the culture surrounding the words uh, that Paul writes to this community. Um, So these are hard words written to people that are experiencing hard days. In the midst of hard days, they're being called to rejoice. But really what Paul is doing is he's reflecting the words of Jesus himself. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 5, Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you. And falsely say all kinds of evil because of me. Rejoice and be glad. For your reward in heaven is great. In the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. It's almost as if uh, Paul is um, asking them, inviting them to be identified with Christ. To be identified as those who who are suffering for the sake of Christ. And Jesus said, rejoice and be glad for your reward is great. See, uh, I wrote this down. This is helping me. This, this command to rejoice always, this, is not, uh, this command is not a matter of feelings, but of obedience. This is not a command. This command is not a matter of feelings, but rather of obedience. We don't rejoice always because we feel like rejoicing. Man, if that's ever true in ministry, right? There's so many times we don't feel like rejoicing, but this is not a command That's a matter of feelings, but of obedience. I like throughout the Psalms, if you read them, it's almost like a a fight for joy, right? It's like the psalmist will begin often, and he'll begin by saying, you know, God, where are you? 
God, do you hear me? God, it feels like my enemies are waging war against me and they're you know, dancing on my grave. You know, he's, he's honest before the Lord. He's real about his hurt. Rejoice always isn't about stuffing our feelings. It isn't about pretending like everything's okay. The Psalms didn't do that. But almost always, almost always where he begins with grief or mourning or crying out to the Lord or desperation, almost always the psalm will end, but yet I will trust you. Yet my hope is in you. Yet I rejoice in you. And so oftentimes in the psalms we see it, it's, it's like this, it's obedience. It's not a matter of feelings, but it is a matter of obedience. And so for us today, what would it mean for us to rejoice always? Pray continually. You know, this is really interesting. And um, this idea really came from the book that Dr. Phil gave out at the last District Huddles. Uh, Pray with eyes wide open. Some of you have been reading that. And this verse really came alive as I read uh, one of the chapters from that book. Because you see, um, I've always known this command. And it's a powerful command, but it's a little overwhelming. And again, if I go back to kind of middle school, high school version of me, I would think about praying continually. So I would think about like, Okay, I can be praying right now, and I can be talking to God all the time. That's a beautiful idea, but, but aren't there the moments when I should be talking to God, and then I get distracted? Like, I was talking to him, and then I had to go to the bathroom. And I, got, I got distracted in there. I won't go into those details. And then I came out, and I forgot that I was, you know, and so then I had this guilt. Like, oh, I'm supposed to be praying continually, and I, you know, or um, all, all the times in our lives where we, we get distracted or, or our minds get. And so with that comes a lot of false guilt. That, man, I'm supposed to be praying continually. I forgot. I forgot. I was watching Alabama play football, right, Dr. Finn? I forgot. I was supposed to be praying. Well, no, it's not hard to pray when you watch Alabama. Lord, <laughs> Right? But no, we're supposed to pray continually. But I wrote this down. This is good. Um, it's, it's not that we have to pray continually. It's that we get to pray continually. It's not that you and I have to pray every moment of every day. God's not going to be disappointed with you when you do not pray at every moment. But the wonder and joy is that the maker of heaven and earth invites you and me to commune with him at all times and in all places. When we're ready to communicate with the God of eternity, his eyes, his ears, and his arms are wide open. That transforms that command for me. It's not that we have to pray continually. It's that we get to. The moment that you cry out to him, man, he's ready. He's listening. Pray continually. Finally, give thanks in all circumstances. We don't have to feel thankful to be thankful. Have you experienced that truth in your life? Have you ever been there? At the moment of, of grief, a moment of loss, a moment of personal, uh, maybe brokenness. And in that moment, you don't feel thankful at all. There's nothing, that, feelings in that moment that cause you to be thankful. And yet, we can be obedient to the call of God. Why? Being in Christ, being sourced by the Spirit, we can be thankful. See, one of the biggest challenges that we face in, in the world in which we live, is that we build the foundation of our lives on our feelings. And I, I know I'm preaching to the choir because many of us often spend time ministering to people within our churches and in our ministry areas that uh, are living their lives just dictated by how they feel. What makes me happy in the moment? How many times do we sit down with, with couples, with married couples, and, 
and, and talk about and listen. And oftentimes it's that, that this person is not making me happy. And I say, man, they were never intended to. <laughs> there's a hole in your heart, in your soul that God alone can fill. And there's, there is no one, there is nothing that can make you happy, that can bring you the fulfillment that Christ alone can. But we live in a world that, I mean, that's, that's the messaging, that's the media. Uh, whatever we need to do to, to be happy, find peace, do it now, no matter the cost, no matter what corners you have to cut, no matter if you have to turn your back, whatever you need to do to be happy, do it. No matter what, you know, if that compromises the word of God, then that, you know, whatever, this is the culture and the world that we live in. We're driven by our feelings. They've become an idol for us, really. Ultimately, it's not a foundation that will stand the test of time because we are not to be guided. Feelings aren't bad. In fact, man, there's a danger in not, not being in touch with our feelings, not listening. But ultimately, the call to thankfulness is not a call to our feel thankful, but to be thankful. Yesterday, I had the opportunity of uh, preaching a funeral for a young man uh, who's 21 years old, he passed away tragically over the weekend in an automobile accident. Um, I knew him as a middle schooler in, in our youth group. And uh, since then, he his family had gotten disconnected from the church, but uh, Pastor Margaret and I were invited to come. And in the midst of preparing for that funeral, in the midst of, of asking the Lord, what is it that I'm supposed to share? Um, I was drawn to the words in Philippians chapter 4. And Philippians chapter 4 says a lot of good things. But in the middle of it, it says, Thanksgiving, I'll read it to you. It says this, the Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts in your minds, in Christ Jesus. Remember, we don't have to feel thankful to be thankful. And as I stood there in front of a, a room of people, deeply grieved, deeply heartbroken, many of them don't know the Lord, I felt led to preach on Thanksgiving. Because the reality is, uh, Thanksgiving doesn't come because of our feelings. Thanksgiving doesn't come even because of our circumstances. Why does Thanksgiving come? It comes because we can be in relationship with the living God. That's why we know Paul says, don't be anxious about anything. He's not saying it uh, because, I mean, remember, he's chained up in prison as he writes these words in Philippians. Uh, he's on death row, and he will ultimately lose his life for the sake of the gospel. So as Paul writes these words, do not be anxious about anything. Uh, he, he's not writing because he feels <laughs> like writing those words. He's not writing because he feels good. He feels happy. In fact, he probably feels burdened. Overcome with grief, sorrowful, but yet in the midst of that, he says, we can come to God and we can do it with thanksgiving. We present our request to God. And so today I want to challenge you. I want to challenge you in Christ to pray continually, to rejoice always and to give thanks in all circumstances. God, today um, we can't pretend we can't pretend to live out the truth of your word in our own strength. We can't pretend um, on our own to somehow be strong enough, good enough to pull this off. Lord, we acknowledge today that we desperately need your help. But the good news is, Lord, 
The good news is, Lord, that you've given us your spirit. In fact, Jesus himself said, it is better for you that I leave so that the Holy Spirit can come. We got to pay attention to that because that, that must mean there's power. That must mean that this spirit that you sent to live inside of us must be so critical. And so, Lord, today, I pray that we wouldn't quench the spirit. Lord, that we would, we would walk in step with your spirit, that there would be nothing in our lives today that would grieve you. There would be nothing, even little areas of obedience, Lord, that when we walk in step with your spirit, Lord, that's when, that's when we see fruit. That's when we see victory. That's when we see that we're able to rejoice, even in sorrow, even in disappointment, even on hard days. Lord, and we don't do that because in our own strength we manufacture. No, no, no. We do it because the spirit of the living God has permission to reign in us. Lord, we can't pray continually at all times and and have this intimate connection with you if we're not living in step with your spirit. And so today, Lord, we welcome you. We invite you. We cannot learn what it is to give thanks in all circumstances just, just kind of winging it on our own, Lord. No, no, no. It's, it's through the power of your Spirit sourcing us, leading us. That even in hard days, even in disappointment, even when we would rather turn to grief and sorrow, and, but even in those moments, Lord, within us can spring up thanksgiving through the power of your Spirit at work in us. So, Lord, today we admit that without you and without your spirit, we've got nothing. We have nothing to offer the world around us in, uh, uh, by ourselves, Lord, but because we're in Christ today and because we have your spirit leading us. Lord, you, you, you give us victory. You give us power. You give us the ability, Lord, to lead others toward the hope that we find in you. So I, I pray for those that have gathered here. Thanks for this time. Thanks for what we're going to learn today. Um, thanks for the ways we'll be challenged, not just by learning some new content, Lord, but challenging community as we talk and we journey together. We love you, Lord, and we're so thankful in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let me tell you a little bit of what's going to happen in teaching church today. Um, the main kind of content today, Bud Reedy has uh, agreed to come and share some things that he's been working through on mentorship. And so um, that will be kind of the meat and potatoes of our time together. And we'll close with just some practical ideas, some practical conversation on the holidays. And what does it mean to minister effectively during this season that's ahead? And so um, if you know me, I'm maybe practical to a fault. So we'll always close with just some practical ideas and thoughts. Well, uh, what we're going to do now, I'm going to ask Brother Bud to come, and we'll take a break at 1030. So we'll do about 30 minutes, if that's okay. And we'll take a break, and we'll come back and do some more after. But um, in conversation, man, Bud Reedy is a great resource for us as a a district. Uh, He's had great uh, experience and leadership in different churches across different districts now. And so I just asked him to share something he's been leaning into. And um, God's given him a lot of passion for this area of mentorship. And that's an area that I think you'll find applies and relates to um, every area of ministry within your church. So um, thanks for being here today and for sharing. Would you give him a warm teaching church welcome? All right. I have a goal uh, this morning. First of all, I want to uh, talk a little bit about... Um, 
some work that I did three or four years ago uh, called uh, The New Reality, Cultural Change, Missional Challenges, and the Wesleyan Holiness Way of Following Jesus. Could I have somebody pass these out? Would you mind? Thanks, bro. Appreciate it. James? Uh, so this is not anything for you to review now, uh, and I'm going to spend like one minute on this. But basically, I started noticing that the last 10 to 15 years um, of my ministry, that my world had changed radically to the point where um, I was feeling some disequilibrium in terms of how to minister um, effectively in the world in which I found myself. So this was a um, like a conference or a seminar that I presented several times. And um, basically the first part of it is, uh, I just call it hope, that although our world has changed and ministry doesn't look a whole lot like the way it looked when I graduated from seminary in 1980, um, but we still, the scripture uh, and the spirit uh, gives us tremendous hope for the future. This is the church of Jesus Christ. Uh, we are the body of Christ. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Can I have an amen? Amen. So, we win. Let's keep our focus there. The second section is basically changes that we have seen um, in our world. And I think they've been radical changes. I really do. And so what I do is I just list some in no particular order. Some of the uh, some of the changes. Change number 30, modernity is slowly coming to a close. A postmodern world is emerging. Um, so, you know, I'm, well, I'm very much steeped in modernism. And so this postmodern thing, believe me, I'm having... A lot of conversations with 20 and 30-something pastors because that's the only air they know how to breathe. And so um, I just want to keep the conversation going. Um, and then in section three, I talk about the effects that this has had on the church. And it has had effects. We have a smaller, shrinking, strapped church that is splintering itself over politics and postmodern views of God and the Bible. Is that fair enough to say? Uh, changing worship attendance patterns. When I was a kid growing up, solid Nazarenes in a little Nazarene church, we were in church not once, not twice, but three times a week. And we went to revival services and camp meetings, etc., etc., etc. The new attendance, regular attendance pattern now, is somewhere between 1.8 and 2.2 Sundays per month. Okay, now that's that's the average... If you're in a smaller church, usually that percentage is higher. It's higher at CFCN. I would say that our average probably is right around three. Three Sundays a month, which is unusual. But I'm saying that that changes everything. It changes giving and the way in which your people give. It changes volunteerism. Um, it changes the way in which you do ministry. Stink. It changes the way you preach, or it ought to. So I'm saying, you know, navigating that is a huge thing. So we talk a little bit about that. The fuel of American evangelism, dollars, is disappearing. Volunteerism is down. Denominational loyalty is down. 40% of Christ followers 
are following Jesus outside the parameters of a traditional congregational context. In other words, nuns are growing. I'm not talking about N-U-N-E-S. I'm talking about N-O-N-E-S. Those that love Jesus but really aren't digging the church. About 40% of self-professed, that's the latest number, it's probably higher, Uh, 40% of professed Christians um, are not meaningfully connected with a local church body. Now, that changes the way we do stuff, or at least it ought to. And then finally, we're not retaining students and young adults. 260,000 young people walk away from the church every year in North America. So, these are all things that we need to address. I'm hoping you know we can have ongoing conversations about that. And so, I just quickly uh, just uh, started, I'm talking about five things that maybe are going to require a little bit of a, a shift in focus for us. Um, it doesn't, um, Leonard Sweet and a cup of coffee at the Soul Cafe, it doesn't do any good to know the signs of the times, what they are, unless you know what to do about them. So what we're trying to do is talk about some things. Prayer toward discernment. We must have our people praying. And the Lord drew me up short here during my review, actually, last week, that my church board was saying we're not praying enough. And they're absolutely right. So prayers of discernment to discern, um, you know, what God's will is and, and how to pursue it. Christian conference toward discernment. In other words... Guys, we need to be talking about this. Uh, thirdly, a return to more a more relational understanding of holiness. It's all about relationships, isn't it? The practice of biblical hospitality. I did not see this one coming. Um, I was in a used bookstore and found a copy of a book I'd never heard of. Um, she's a professor at um, Asbury Seminary, and her name um, is Christine Pohl. She wrote a book, Making Room, Recovering Hospitality as a Christian Tradition, and this church, this book rocked my world in terms of understanding how we do church. And we don't think, we think of hospitality as coffee and donuts on Sunday morning. No, hospitality affects everything we do. Are we an open and welcoming church? And I admit this is no political statement here. Are we really and truly a welcoming and open church? And are we aggressive about our approach to hospitality, um, some radical expressions. Nine reasons why I think we're going to figure this thing out and be okay. Number one, Jesus said the gates of hell's not going to prevail against it. Number two, uh, both lay and clergy are demonstrating a willingness to face the new reality and talk about it. Number three, prayer movements are developing in many churches. Four, church planting and church revitalization is being emphasized more and more. Number five, and this is a biggie, bivocationality is on the rise in North America. We have got to come to terms with that. Uh, Let's just go ahead and say we need to embrace it. Um, Theological education by extension and ministry preparation through internships are growing. We are on the verge of a revival of biblical hospitality. Eight, the Wesleyan holiness way of following Jesus uniquely prepares us for the new reality. I believe that. The Church of the Nazarene is in a really good position to address this. If we really embrace who we are, if we really embrace who we are, we're in a good position to address this. And we're becoming less and less dependent on buildings and money. That's huge. 
Um, can I just go ahead and say that um, my generation very much bought into the myth that build and then they will come. I'm not taking any, I'm not going to cast any responsibility on any edge. It was boomers. We love some buildings, boy. And um, it's coming back to bite us. So being able to start, <laughs> being able to start new congregations, and this is a whole other presentation, but being able to start new congregations with no buildings and no money. Um, it can be done. Read church history, okay? It, it can very much be done. All right, so that's the end of that presentation. All right, so I got a phone call this morning from um, a staff member. His name is Gary Osteen, part-time bivocational volunteer. Um, he said, uh, Pastor Buck, he said, uh, what are you thankful for today? And I, he said, I'm just doing a survey of all my friends today, which I thought was really cool. What are you thankful for today? Now, besides Jesus and my family, uh, the first thing that came to mind is that I'm a 66-year-old pastor who was encouraged to retire. But one day, I got a phone call that there was a church in Virginia that might be open to my coming. I am very thankful to the good people of the Charlottesville First Church of the Nazarene. And uh, just had my review last week. A review, if I could, is somewhat like visiting the urologist. <laughs> you know you need it and that it's good for you, but it kind of makes you uncomfortable. So, uh, but they gave me a unanimous invitation to return. And that's not lost on me. How grateful I am for the church. How grateful I am for the church. So... Uh, that was my answer to him, and I mean that. So, uh, Dr. Phil and I talked a little bit on the phone before I came and interviewed, and he said there's a, a little bit of an unusual situation in the church that was at that time running about 120 in worship. You have eight staff members. I said, say what? You have eight staff members. You have eight, all of them part-time, bivocational only one of them is paid a part-time and the rest are volunteers. I went, alrighty then. I've never heard of such a thing uh, in a church of 120 people. I came and um, we spent some time together and then each of them in their own way said to me, you know, Pastor Bud, um, they may not have used this language, but basically what they were asking me to do was mentor them. And so my attempt at first was to have a monthly staff meeting, at which time I could use that as an opportunity to mentor them. We spent that time usually when all of them could be there. Did I mention they were all bivocational? So uh, we spent a lot of time um, putting out fires. And so wasn't a whole lot of mentorship taking place, really. So then I thought, well, okay, I'm just going to teach as many classes as I can in the course of study, and I, I'm thankful for the opportunity, and I had a chance to teach some classes, but there was so much content and material to cover, I really felt like we didn't have much time for mentorship. And then I read something by Neil Cole that really kind of got things started for me. So it's not mentorship unless it's one-on-one. -on -one. Amen. It's not mentorship unless it's one-on-one. -on -one. It's something else. Um, you really can't... Now, you may disagree with that. You, you may say, well, 
You know, you can mentor a group of people. Well, it may be leadership development, it may be discipleship, of which mentorship is a part of discipleship. But true mentorship can only be done one-on-one. And so I began to talk to Jesus and say, how in the world am I supposed to do that? There's eight people. So I sat down uh, with pen and paper, um, and for six months, uh, Sally and I worked on uh, what I'm going to be talking to you today about. It's called Mentorship on the Run. Um, And it is a way, (laughs) we'll see how effective it is, Uh, But it is a way of mentoring people. So I pass that. I'm going to share with you as best I can about the importance of mentorship in general. And by the way, if I'm not mistaken, when you were ordained, there is a reference made to uh, the importance of mentoring others. Correct? Absolutely. Yeah. So um, it's one of four things that get highlighted. Could you... Go over those? It's in manual paragraph. I'm sad that I know this. <laughs> <laughs> Number 501.236. And, uh, you know, like, among the, like, it, it lists things like a passion for the lost, a passion that people will go on to perfection, a passion for the Bible, commitment to mentor those who receive a call to ministry and to help train I think it's one of the crown jewels, really. And then the final one is to be an example in prayer. It always rings in the assembly when that's read. But uh, it's one of the it's kind of one of the core things we agree to at ordination. We're going to be invested in those specifically who respond to God's call. Yeah. We could go so far as to say if you don't do it, it's a dereliction. Wow. So, what to do? Um, the first thing that ha- kind of happened in my spirit is the realization that in the 27 years that I was at Still Meadow and in the 10 years before that in Hershey, Pennsylvania, in Oxford, Pennsylvania, I had mentored no one. <clears throat> I had staff meetings. We had leadership development. And some of those individuals today um, refer to me sometimes, some of them, as kind of a mentor. But I had not mentored them. And I really began to feel tremendous regret over that. You know, here I am, a 64-year-old pastor, and I've never really mentored anyone. But then I read something. Someone is going to have to go on their cell phone and find the man's full name. He wrote a book called The Best Year Ever. Thanks. He wrote a book called The Best Year Ever. I bought it at Ollie's for $3.99. I almost walked by it because it sounded a little light to me. And as it turns out, it was extremely helpful. But he's got a discussion um, of regret. Darren Hardy. Pardon me? Darren Hardy? No, it must be a different guy. Michael Hyatt. Michael Hyatt, thank you. Some of you may be familiar with Michael Hyatt. He's a a personal management guy, Christian guy, and uh, he's been pretty successful. But he wrote a book called The Best Year Ever. And there was a section there on regret, and I've never forgotten it. He just says there's two things you can do with regrets. And he said we all have them. I don't know if you agree with that or not, but we all have regrets. 
there's two things you can do with those regrets. You can either view them as roadblocks to your future, because you feel such regret that you feel like you can't move. They paralyze you. They keep you from trying. They keep you from taking risks. They keep you from really being you know, open to maybe God's next thing. So you can view regrets as roadblocks, or you can view them as road signs. And a light came on for me. I'm going to channel that regret positively into my future as a road sign as to being, I feel regret, but could it be because that's what God is wanting me to do in the future? Now, I resonated with that. So instead of sitting around and beating myself up over the fact that I had not been mentoring anybody, I made up my mind that this is going to become a very important part of my life. Well, it better be, because I've got eight people, <laughs> you know, that are hoping in some way that I can mentor them. So it became a, a part of the motivation uh, for a writing somewhat of what I'm going to share with you. And also, um, you know, for six months, um, Sally and I worked together on what is now known as Mentorship on the Run. So I, I would like you to, to, first of all, turn with me. Um, and as we read together... Uh, this is from the notebook that I produced, Section 1, Introduction to Mentorship on the Run. There are a bunch of mentorship programs out there, and that's good. Both mentors and mentees need plenty of options to choose from. Mentorship as a discipline may never have been more important than it is right now. Can I have an amen on that one? All fields are stressing its importance, including and especially the field of spiritual leadership. Spiritual leaders under construction need a mentor or two. The experienced pastors slash mentors need a mentee or two. Or you've heard this phrase, every Paul needs a Timothy, every Timothy needs a... Right. Critical relationship. And I'll be honest with you, I'm not sure who gets the most out of this. (laughs) My mentorees or me. In fact, I'm fairly sure I get a lot more out of it than they do. Um... You know, it's a little bit of that halftime stuff from Bob Buford where your life, when you hit middle age, you go from um, success to significance. Um, So, I think that's a part of the shift for me. Mentorship is for mentors and mentorees who find themselves on the run, on the move, however you want to word it. The demands of life and ministry are growing and becoming more and more complex. Many potential mentors are maxed out in ministry and life and just can't seem to find the time for mentorship. And many mentees are maxed out too. Jobs, family, studies, ministry assignments. And growing number of bivocational persons in ministry is making mentorship even more difficult. You with me so far? Okay. MOTR was created with such a person in mind. Uh, We'll skip now through so you can read that yourself at another time. So, what I want to do now um, is I, I, want, I want to talk about, uh, on the front page here, uh, the importance, uh, excuse me, on the table of contents. I know I'm kind of jumping back and forth here, but the table of contents, here's the way that I designed this first iteration of mentorship on the run. And it's under revision. I'm hoping that, um, you know, the new version of Mentorship on the run will be able to address some of the weaknesses and shortcomings of the first. But 
First of all, we have split it into two things, the interior life and one's exterior ministry. I have 20 um, conversations that I've written on the interior life. Um, and 20 conversations that I've written on one's exterior ministry. And to be honest with you, maybe some of you are going to view a lot of this as being boilerplate. Um, and it is. Um, as Maybe as too simple. Maybe. Um, but I think there are things that there just may be some things that are covered in here that are not necessarily covered at seminary, Bible college, or theological education by extension. These are the conversations that your professors don't have the time to have with their, all their students one-on-one. Even in theological education by extension, you just don't have the time to cover these things. And that's an understanding. So... What I would like to do now, if I could, is have you go to uh, Mentorship on the Run, Mentor's Guide, session number one, Mentorship. And we've got about uh, five, ten minutes before we break. Okay. What I'm going to do is I want to walk you through a typical session. And I've decided that what I'm going to do is do the one on mentorship, because that's the first one that a mentor has with their mentoree. So they set some ground rules. They set a framework for their conversation. This is what it's meant to be. It's meant to be a conversation. And I want you to know that each and every session has more material in it than you could ever cover in an hour. I I want you to know that I am depending on, or hoping, that mentors will be able to um, scratch out two five, and nine if they don't like them, and write in their own. Or if you need two sessions to cover, uh, two conversations to cover the session on intercessory prayer, that you'll feel free to split those up, split it up into three conversations if you want to. A lot of people say, well, you know, when they look at it at first, they say, you expect us to cover all this material in one session? No, you can't if you want to. But what I'm hoping is there's enough material there so that, you know, that you'll have the resources that you need to have that conversation. Session number one on mentorship. And what we have here, the mentor has a notebook that has all 40 conversations in it. The mentoree has a notebook that has outlines in it. And so the thing that makes this different is you can do it one-on-one in person or you can do it on the phone, you can do it on Skype, you can do it on... What's that new Facebook thing that's out now? All the commercials with the, the screen, and yeah. which is really, really cool. Um, but you can use social media as a way of meeting. You say, that's not ideal. Okay, we don't live in an ideal world. Now, what this does is there are no longer any geographic... Um, What's the word I'm looking for? Limitations. Thank you to this. One of the very first persons I was able to give this resource to was a young man who's pastoring on the eastern shore of Maryland. He's got a guy that was in his church for a while but has moved to Seattle. And he is now mentoring him. (laughs) The guy lives in Seattle. I said, how did it go? 
He said, I was driving down the road one day with my notebook open and on the speakerphone, and I mentored him for an hour. You see, I, I'm, I'm thinking that what we've done here is that we've made the physical meeting together not necessary. It's the ideal, and it's great if you can, get in your car and drive, you know, two hours each way and meet at Bob Evans. That's great if you can. And you should try to continue to do that. But what this does is, this allows you to have three or four or five years of conversations with that person, no matter where they are. They could be in Botswana. You can mentor that person. It's not ideal, but I think it's also helpful with bivocational persons. Because, you know, I've been mentoring this one person who lives an hour away, and I've had conversations with her at 7 in the morning, and I've had a conversation now with her at 9 o'clock at night. So time is no longer an issue. It's just a matter of getting your schedules together. So that's the concept. So it goes like this. Welcome. Now, I'm the mentor. I'm having this conversation now. Hey, I want to welcome you to Mentorship on the Run. Mentorship on the Run is different, and that's intentional. It's a great need, and it's unique. Mentorship on the Run is a 40-plus session conversation between people with a common interest. We both love Jesus and the church that bears his name. So let's, let's just get started in this conversation. Who is a mentor? Well, a mentor is a person that has some knowledge and experience they are willing to share with another person. That's it. Um, a mentee or a mentoree um, is a person who is open to some direction from the mentor, someone who wants and needs a mentor, and they know they need a mentor. All individuals that you may or may not reach out to aren't going to necessarily know they even need a mentor. And that's okay. I have eight on staff at um, CFCN, and to be honest with you, I'm having re regular conversations with six of them. There are two of them that are going, nah, I'm good, and that's okay. No, really, uh, because don't even try to mentorship, don't even try to mentor someone unless they are hungering and thirsting after it. If they're not hungering and thirsting after it, then don't try to force feed them. That doesn't do any good, and uh, it'll just be a frustration for both parties. Do you have somebody, I want you to be thinking, do you have somebody in your life right now that is hungering and thirsting after that relationship as best you know it? And um, would you be willing to have a, a very general kind of conversation with them and say, you know, I've been praying about this and the Lord has laid you on my heart. And if it's okay, if you're interested, I'd be willing to have um, conversations with you about that. I, I've got a funny feeling that there are individuals that are secretly longing for this, but don't even know how to start that conversation. In fact, they, were look, they would be a little bit hesitant to walk up to a, a potential mentor and go, Hey, listen, man, could you, could you spend like 150, 200 hours with me? <laughs> And they're afraid to even start that conversation. I already talked about the mentorship is divided into two sections. What makes this experience unique is it can be done on the move. The mentor asks potential mentee if they're interested in such a relationship. I have presented the material to a potential mentoree with the idea that she's going to pray over this material and then go to a potential mentor. I'm very anxious to see how that goes. 
Because I don't want to limit, you know, what God is doing here. Uh, but I think, by and large, it's best if the mentor, the potential mentor, is the one that initiates. I think that's important. Um, and that, that sends a really strong message, whatever their response is. I care about you. I'm interested in you. And I'm ready to make an investment of my life in you. I wish I'd have had that. Oh, I, I went to Eastern Nazarene College and Nazarene Theological Seminary and did some advanced studies at Wesley Seminary. I never once had a professor say to me, you know something, man? I'd like to invest into your life. Did that happen to you? Maybe it did. God bless you. But I picked a little bit here and a little bit there from people that I know and admire. In fact, one of the reasons why I try to read a book a week, and I'm not always very good at that, but one of the reasons why I try to read a book a week, because I go into it, this person is going to mentor me and I'll never meet them. But it is one-on-one, and they are sharing their thoughts with me, and they are sharing visions with me. So there is a mentorship element in that, and it's one of the reasons why I read. I'm a debtor to the people who wrote a lot of the books I'm giving away today. But you know, they had to write the book, and they had to publish it, and they had to put it out there, or I'd have never gotten it. So, the mentor asks a potential mentee if they're interested in such a relationship. If interest is shown, then a hard copy of a worksheet is sent to the mentee's residence. And I know that I have sent some copies to some of you. The mentor sets up a day and a time when they can talk and the session is scheduled. The mentor spends 40 to 45 minutes going over the 10 things. The mentor refills in the blanks. You know, that's that's pretty self-explanatory. But what I want to do now is going on... um, And this one more thing. This approach may be especially helpful uh, to people who are exploring their calling and to bivocational persons who need flexibility in their schedule. It also may be helpful to a mentor who has both limited time and a desire for the mentor to mentor more than one person. I am now presently mentoring eight people. This has been field tested. It can be done. I don't, I don't, it probably averages I'm having about four conversations a week. That's four hours of my time. Four hours. And I'm mentoring four people a week. It can be done. So it's been field tested from that perspective. So this is a good place for us to break. Because then I want to get, I wanted to get into the very first session on mentorship and give you some history about mentorship and what it can be. Here's the question, and we're going to give you about three or four minutes for this exercise. What does this passage teach us that could be applied to mentorship? John 13, 1 through 35. What does this passage teach us that could be applied to mentorship? Primarily of how scripture is used in the mentorship. There's not a grid that gives you answers. Um, It's for the mentor and the mentor E to come together as peers and as equals um, in in wrestling with a passage. Yeah. Yeah, and you know, you never know. That could end up being your whole hour. Because the one thing that we try to do is we try to make sure that bunny trails are allowed. And not only that, encouraged. You may be on the subject of intercessory prayer, but you may take a trail that kind of leads away from that and talk about things 
I don't want to be so locked in to the ten conversations. I want you to feel free. I mean, to the ten points, the ten things. I don't want you to get so locked into that that you're not able to. Uh, uh, you're not able to um, play a little jazz and be able to talk about whatever it is you want to talk about. And the well, that allows you to tailor to each person you're with. Yes. Did you guys catch that? That allows you to tailor the material to the person that you're with, and that's extremely important. Some of the f- initial response I've gotten is that it seemed too mechanical. And um, I think that's a, a legit concern. So um, I've tried to address that. I've also, I've had a couple of people that, that sent it back and said, um, I don't like this. And, you know, my response has been, oh, okay, um, that's fine. Um, so that's why I, in this letter that I've written, I put um, mentorship on the run is not for everyone. You may consider using something else produced like by John Maxwell or others. Find the tool or tools that fit your situation best. And mentorship on the run may not be the best tool for you. I think the main thing is that I, I, I want to encourage you to mentor people. Mm-hmm. Um, whatever form or basis that ever comes to, it's it, it, as long as you're mentoring someone in, in, in that aspect. Yeah. And you derive the mentorship from him so, so you can tailor to fit his needs and yeah. his wants. I've had, I have gotten this con, uh, um, response quite a bit, which is I've really wanted to mentor someone, but really didn't know how to start or where to start. Right. And so, if nothing else, mentorship on the run is a kind of a template that you can use um, going forward. Gordon MacDonald wrote this introduction in Bob Beale's Mentoring. In the past, mentoring happened everywhere. On the farm, a boy or a girl was mentored alongside of mothers, fathers, and extended family members. Mentoring was the chief learning method in the Society of Artisans, where an apprentice spent years at the side of a craftsman, learning not only the mechanics of a function, but the way of life which surrounded it. I thought that was a powerful idea. When you're mentoring someone, you're not just mentoring them, about the mechanics of being a pastor. But you're talking about the way of life associated with that function in the world. And there's a lot associated with being a pastor that we don't talk a whole lot about. Um, And so that, it's a way, you don't want it to become a gripe session, but you want to be a, a realization that this is a very, very hard thing that God is calling you to do. And that's, that's one of the things we have to deal with when we're dealing with younger folks uh, in terms that are just starting to sense a call. And they look and they see the rather glamorous aspects of what we do. Oh, I love the preaching. And well, I mean, who doesn't? <laughs> okay. But maybe what is not clearly understood is a lot of the things associated with being a pastor that that require tremendous adjustments in your life. <laughs> but let me let me ask a question. Sure. Let me just sort of play into this statement that was just made. I had a young man in my church who um, 
this is a part of the new reality um, amongst young people, and that is the more of the um, the rise in the respect for trades among mm-hmm. young the, the new generation, saying there's you know um, uh, respect given to now his selected uh, career was going to be an electrician. Now, in his case, he had chosen then to go and serve with a local, I guess it was going to be an electrician company, but his only choice in terms of becoming a, uh, an apprentice was going to be to serve with this electrical company, and that was not, uh, there was not a, an alternative to become then whatever the, I'm not big, I don't know what the process is, some of you um, journeyman, I guess, is the next step, and then master, master electrician. Master electrician, right? right. Um, but this would not be an option for him. Um, this sort of a, a process to become mentored, if you will, he could not do the Skype or whatever the Google, new Google process would be in terms of being mentored in the process of becoming an electrician. He has no other choice. There would not be. He right. has to be mentored in the school of electricity or electrician in a hands-on or one-on-one as, I guess, somebody was really identifying with the, the one-on-one mentoring right. process. That is a is a non-negotiable mm-hmm. in terms of the mentoring process. I mean, could you speak to that sort of a, um, that piece of the, the puzzle from that paradigm? Yeah, and along with that that profession, there are certain marks that he has to hit, certain certifications that he has to get, and that are requirements. Yeah. Right. So that still, when you think about it, it's not mentorship per se, because it's a professionally um, down through the years. There are there are marks that have to be hit, and so that really is not mentorship per se. The certifications, are, it's more of a formal certification process. Well, well, it depends on what relationship you have with that person who's working you through that apprenticeship. Being that I was a, a mechanic coming up and I started from nothing and came up. Yeah. When I got a hold of a person, and fortunately he was a man of high caliber and standards, he taught me those standards as he did what he was doing and related that to what a work I did. In other words, the idea of being punctual or the idea of being detailed or being everything else was doing that. You just don't follow that during what you're doing. You follow that through your life. Right. Plus so he, it was kind of a, a combination thing. Plus he taught you tricks of the trade that probably you wouldn't have learned on your own. Oh, no doubt. Everybody, that's a part of the certification the process. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's what I'm saying is it, it's, it's part of that thing. But it's just when I did it, it was just not a trade. Right. It was it was life. As much of this goes to our conversation, the conversation about the new reality in ministry that right. you have brought up about the bivocational mm-hmm. reality and that um, many of the current, uh, of the ministerial pool is no longer going for quote-unquote certification at seminaries and whatnot. Right, right. And so they're going to, their mentorship process may become more and more crucial, um, even in a formal way, uh, you know, they come alongside, the, you know, the local pastor 
uh, is mentoring. Your, your mentoring process may become, the end result may be that, it, it did for me, I actually had two pastors under my leadership become fully ordained pastors, and they're both now leading, they're both now lead pastors in churches. But they were, they were not, in fact, they became locally licensed pastors and came up through and then became uh, district licensed and then ordained and are, are now ordained pastors in churches. So their process was all a part of a, a mentoring process along it was. the way as well. Yeah. So um, this is, become, is going to become, I think, more the norm um, than it ever has been and wondering about just sort of that, the combination right. uh, of the two. Yeah, it's definitely both, James. The history of our church has shown that the formal process cannot be replaced. It's excellent. Um, it's 2,000 years old, almost. And so the formal idea of taking, completing the course of study, going to your district um, meetings, having those conversations with district leadership, Moving toward ordination. I'm not talking about this replacing that. I'm talking about this supplementing that. Um, And both are critically important. But I I would have a tendency to agree with you that I think the mentorship piece, in light of bivocationality and in light of a variety of other things, is maybe becoming more important. I'm not saying as important, but it, it may someday be as equally as important as the formal part of it. And by and large, it's, it, it's missing. I think that's the thing that concerns me. But I, I have agreed, I, I think in this new reality in which we live, I don't think mentorship has ever been more important than it is now. Oh, back, back to the, the first few thousand years where there was no formal process. Well, it was important then because it was the only preparation those individuals had. It, it may be a stretch, maybe what I'm getting to, to do a bi-coastal relational mentoring relationship, however, though. That may be something I'm calling attention to. Bi-coastal. Keep going. I mean, I don't think, I don't know that I can have a good mentoring relationship where I don't rub against the shoulder of the person I'm... Absolutely. You know, that that's a bit of the issue that I... If I can't literally show the person how to, to connect two wires together and how to how to troubleshoot or how to you know how to you know to go to a funeral with Adrian and and, and navigate funeral waters, I, I don't know that that actually can be an effective mentoring relationship. No, it certainly won't be as effective. Yeah, that, that's but at the point at the point I'm making is better that than nothing. Mm. I mean, I, I, you know, maybe that's a maybe that's a cop out, but better that than nothing. And I just refer to that paragraph that you just read. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's kind of what I'm referring to. Like when it's all <coughs> like that sort of homespun where everything happened. In, and and I get what you're saying, but you know, it is the new reality of the 21st century and all that we live in. Well, we're trying, and let, let's see what happens on these long-distance mentorship things. Let's let's see the benefit. I don't know. Time may show that it wasn't very good. That's okay. Uh, somebody had their hand up. Was that you, Steve? I did. Then when he said he was talking about just that paragraph, I wanted to go back to that paragraph. I think that through this process, it is it's going to be a both end, and, and that's what I personally have experienced. 
in these conversations, as I listen and, and I flesh out things with the mentor, he, I, I learn where some intentionality can be can happen through these conversations. So it might be a kind of a broad stroke, and it's like, okay, so they're, they're asking me where the conversation's going. Now, I learn better how to say, hey, you know what, I'm doing a funeral uh, yeah. on this time frame, so how about you come and read some scripture with me, or uh, go with me to the first visit with the family just prior to, how would that work for you? And um, But I learned through the conversation. Not just how to dialogue in, 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 the, in the ideal thoughts, but also where to pull in that hands-on invitation. Hmm. So it's both hands. It's helpful. Thank you. Yes. Yeah, I, I think in, in uh, all of mentoring, there's you know a different aspect of what is going to be the outcome of this. So you you got the uh, you got the being and the doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. You got the mind and the heart and the skill. Um, so in all of those areas, uh, it's gonna you're gonna influence in different in different aspects. Um, being and doing, you know, big deal. Uh, those are those are big deals in the in the process of, of mentoring. So um, whether you are, um, you know, what what is being exposed to whether it's a scripture process yeah. or whether it's a, we we're talking about skills um, you know um, how does this apply to the skills it's like okay I can do this a little better the skill part but what about my being you know how do I need to think differently mm-hmm. be different as an individual as a person mm-hmm. so all aspect of learning <coughs> will hit those different areas and mm-hmm. you know uh, regardless of um the industry or yeah. the type of work that um, you know, we are in. So. That was really good. Another thing I want to make clear, too, on some of the mechanics of using this, I know it's listed 1 through 40. There are some people that thought, you expect us to do 20 conversations about the interior before we get to exterior things? No, 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 no. I numbered them so they would be easy to identify. You can jump around all over the place. And I think one of the really cool things about this, don't be afraid to say to the mentoree, hey, what do you want to look at next? You know yourself, you know your context, you know your needs. What do you want to look at next? Oh, you want to look at um, you you want to look at discipleship? Okay, let's go look at that. Oh, we have one conversation. Oh, Pastor Buck, can we have five conversations about discipleship? Sure. So you let um, you let the mentoree be able to have a, a strong voice in the process, right? But that was not really clearly understood when I first sent it out. You know, it did seem rather mechanical. But you know, when you think about it, um, uh, you said uh, mind and heart, and there's a little bit of that understanding that you're looking at the heart in section one um, on in the internal life. The, in fact, what, there's one session called heart, and then the second half is more uh, the, the nuts and bolts of. Being a pastor in the 21st century in a Wesleyan Holiness congregation. Some of those nuts and bolts. Excellent. And other feedback before we go on. Uh, mentoring, number four, mentoring is a lifelong relationship. Um, mentoring is a lifelong relationship. A relationship with someone you like, enjoy, believe in, and want to see win in life. That's huge. If you're optimistic about the person. Somebody that... 
I can't tell you the number of times I've heard this. Say, I would like to, you know, address the possibility of us being um, entering into a mentor-type relationship. Me? Oh, I see things in you. I see things in you that... And then later the person says, my mentor saw things in me I didn't see in myself. So that's a huge piece of it. Let's go on. Mentoring intentionalizes a relationship. And four, it helps uh, a protege reach his or her God-given potential. Mm -hmm. That's from the book Mentoring by Bob Beal. I thought those were helpful. Uh, Misconceptions about mentoring. This is number five. The mentor must be much older than the mentee. The mentor must have a flawless record in ministry. Um, Some of the best mentors teach from both successes and failures. (laughs) Uh, Amen? Uh, The mentor must be someone who knows everything there is to know about life and ministry. How about this? How about this? A question is asked and we say, dude, I don't know. Let's examine that together. And we both learn because I don't know about that. And then the mentor's primary curriculum is scholastic and academic. The mentor's primary curriculum is experience and heart. And E, it is the mentor's responsibility to control and correct the mentee. It's not to control the trajectory they're on, nor is it necessary to correct. I mean, there are some things that are very, very clear from Scripture that his or her feet are not on the best path in a spirit of humility and compassion to be able to say, I would like you to consider Uh, how that maybe this is not the best path or maybe that's not the best way to think about this. Let's continue to explore this together. Um, Actually, the mentor's responsibility is to challenge and stretch. (laughs) My favorite word in the whole mentorship, this is going to, if it's true mentorship, it's going to stretch both of you. Yes? I took a mentoring class uh, last People are the drivers of their own life. We can encourage them, but we can't tell them what to do. Do you agree mm. with that? Yeah, yeah. I think there's a there's a fine line there, but I think encouragement is the best tool we have at that point. I think it's asking the ability to ask leading questions is huge, mm. so that they will actually discover this for themselves. That's the best kind of learning. It's for them to learn this stuff on their own and by themselves. And they'll embrace it more fully if it's something that they feel and they know that they have um, discovered for themselves or that you've discovered it together. But if a mentoree comes into the thing like, I'm the answer guy, I've got all your answers for the rest of your life, most mentorees are just going to turn you right off. Ain't nobody has all the answers, brother. So... Uh, there's a couple of other resources there that you can walk through, um, kind of a study of the relationship in this first session on mentorship, a study of the relationship between Paul and Silas, a study of the relationship between Paul and Barnabas, a study of the relationship with, between Paul and, of course, Timothy. It's so interesting that at first, um, an individual was a mentor, or a, a mentoree, and then the individual became a peer, which is a really exciting dynamic, isn't it? I think that's especially true in the staff situation um, early on, is to say, yes, we are peers, but there's a few things I've discovered along the way that may be helpful to you. So I want to ask those of you who have staff, 
what would be some of the advantages to this kind of thing, and what would be some of the potholes that we need that we would need to look at if you're going to attempt to mentor staff members? What would be some of the maybe the better way to say that? What are some of the challenges? Yes. I was just going to say that in terms of maybe potholes or something like that. You got a staff member, and if they're a paid staff member, you are their boss. And for some people, that becomes a, a wall or a barrier. You know, um, you can you can lead me, but you can also fire me. Do you follow what I'm saying? I do. Yeah. So that might be. That could be. Yeah. A dynamic, no question. Yeah. First of all, I really like it because, uh, I mean, from the standpoint of this material, I, I would just say to anybody in this room that if you. Ever, ever read anything that Bud has done, it's going to be done really well. Mm-hmm. If you read the material that you've got in front of you, you can see that it's done really well. And so any of the stuff that he's left out that you have to, you're going to have to purchase. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, Thank you. Someone else? <laughs> um, Moving right along. Price, I'm sure. No, seriously, um, what it will enable me to do, and, I, and this is the way I would want to use it if I were to use it um, in a meaningful way with staff persons, is that I would get to pick and choose lessons or um, topics that I think are apropos at the time. I may not go through it in a step-by-step right. way, per se, because I may not find everything at the time appropriate. I may be working with a particular topic um, that I've might find, and then I might uh, go to a staff person and say, you know, please read through this, and let's take the opportunity to talk about this, or uh, let's let's take time to uh, to go over this together. Uh, what do you think about this? And use it, in, and again, as I mentioned earlier, to customize our conversation around that particular topic. You know, this is not the first material that's come out in a topical version of its kind, but it is the first mentoring uh, material. Uh, I, I forget who wrote it out, but there was a church leaders curriculum that I've got binders of it. Um, yeah. I don't know if you're familiar with the orange binders. Come on, what was his name? But I mean, it was for boards and for yeah, other, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, um, but it's sorry. like, but this is the first mentoring material that I've seen, and your topic list is really replete with great. Material, so I, I would find it to be really, and I'm presuming that hopefully that you can even maybe add to it in the future if you find new topics that yeah. would be appropriate to add. So, exactly. You know, I want to add a. We're going to stick with the 40 conversations, but what I want to add is an appendix, an addendum to what an appendix. Yeah, I got a guy writing. What are the 10 steps toward ordination? That's not in there, but just make it really, really clear. I said, what, what's this ordination thing? What is it? And what are the ten steps? What are the ten things I need to know about ordination? So there are things that are in process now, and they're not necessarily being written by me. Because, you know, that's something I do now. Like, if I find an article in a magazine, I'll print that magazine article off, and I'll put it in staff, you know, mail slots, and we'll, you know, sometimes it's just for, their, for them to read it, and us, you know, and we don't discuss it, or sometimes we do have a discussion about it, or... Or not. So this could be that sort of business. Uh, Thank you. Someone else? Any reflections on what you've heard so far? Or maybe something that you're not seeing here that you'd like to talk about? Well, you know, this Franklin put three relationships seen in the life of Apostle Paul. I think we're not doing justice if we don't see 
the relationship between Paul and Mark where he missed it. He kind of bombed. He did. He did. Which gives us license to do that once in a while. Yeah. Thank you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's perspective, though. Yeah. Sometimes mentorship is tough love. Mm-hmm. Sometimes. And, um, but he did make it a wake-up call. He needed Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Well, the beautiful thing about that is at the end of his life, when he's waiting to be executed, he says, send me Mark. Yeah. Because he's profitable to me for ministry. Mm-hmm. So in one of the toughest seasons of his life, he goes back to a young man who bails out. But he had learned a lesson. He had repented. He was restored. And he became useful to the ministry. And there are some that will not repent. Like you had us read that passage. Um, Jesus predicts Judas' betrayal. So Jesus poured into Judas as well as all the others for three years. And still some will fall away. That's just a fact fact of life. Yeah. It's I think sad fact, but it is. I think there's several things today, you know, that you pointed out. Uh, number one, the fact that you mentored your own life through books that you read, speakers that you heard. Uh, and for every one of us, we have those opportunities sure. to develop our own minds and lives and to have if you want to call it that, our own spiritual heroes, who in a sense become our Pauls, we become their Timothys. And, uh, you know, uh, he encourages us to be strong in the grace of Christ Jesus, and he says, the things that you have seen of me, he said, you commit those to faithful men who in turn will be able to commit those to others also. That is a mentorship process that Paul used in the life of Timothy and those who came after him. So Paul even had in his own life. And I would even go so far as to say that mentorship is something that we actually can be doing all the time. It doesn't matter if we're in the pulpit or we're at work. work. Uh, You know, I shared the other night in our staff meeting, uh, we were just sharing some of the things that were a part of our lives. I have a four-year-old grandson that I take to kindergarten three days a week. And from the time that he gets into my truck until we get here, we're listening to some kind of music that's going to be beneficial to him or having a conversation about, I mean, things that can pertain to, you know, spiritual life. For instance, he said to me um, last week, my dad passed away two years ago, and we had gone over to Charlottesville to pray with one of the ladies from our church. And on the way home, he said, we pop by and we go all that way to pray for that lady. And I said, well, he said, God, I and so he said to me, he said, well, Pop, let's pray that God would give Grandpa two good legs so that he can come back to Earth and be with us. Mm-hmm. Now, as a four-year-old, mm-hmm. and mentorship is something, to me, I, I, I mean, uh, we, we talk about living life in the Spirit, but mentorship should be something that's natural with breathing. Because Jesus said, you go into all the world and make disciples. You are my witnesses. And if the Spirit of God lives within us, there has to be a natural spiritual desire to encourage, to reach, to teach, and, if you please, to mentor people who are around us. I understand that mentorship takes an additional step, that there is a greater responsibility. But it is sharing life together on a spiritual plane. And when you talk about the fact that 
there is a new reality. The new reality is that the church has allowed the world to creep in. And they have affected us. Has affected us, rather yes. Rather than you and I living at such a level that we are affecting them. And that's where we are today. That's well said. One of the things that I've noticed is that there's two demographics in the church right now that I think are really struggling. And the first is um, younger pastors. I love the initiative that's being taken on the young pastors or the young clergy initiatives and stuff like that. I think that's extremely important. But I'm seeing individual seminary grads coming out of seminary and college and seminary with unspeakable amounts of debt. They're going to smaller churches oftentimes that can barely afford to pay them a living wage. And so you've got that dynamic, plus maybe because they've really not been mentored, they've gone through all the formal pieces, but they've not been mentored, they go into a pastorate, I want to go ahead and say this, I hope it's not offensive, but with rather unrealistic expectations Mm -hmm. about what the ministry is going to be and that kind of thing. I don't know what the stats are now, but it's about six or seven years and they're gone. And our church cannot afford this. We have got to find a way to encourage those individuals to keep moving forward in ministry. On the other end, on the democratic level, it's old farts like me that are kind of going, what do I do with the rest of my life? I've got all this experience. I've got, you know, uh, I've got some stuff that I would love to share with someone, but they don't know how. See, that's my, that's my hope here. Now, it's got to be organic. I'm working with a district right now, and they have quickly come to the conclusion that this has got to be organic, and you can't make it into a district program. Because if you make it into a district program, you're, you've just killed it. Okay? No, it's, and it's, it's got nothing to do with the ministry of the district or superintendent and everything else. I'm just simply saying the best and most natural way to do this is under the leadership of the Holy Spirit where a mentor goes, man, the Lord has just laid this young pastor on my heart. What am I going to do with that? I think there's so much I would love to be able to share with them. And to empower and enable and to equip that person at a district assembly or at the pastor's and spouse's retreat and go, you know, the Lord has really laid you on my heart. Would you be open to us having some conversations? I mean, what could happen to our church? What could, what could happen to our church? Now, that brings me to the commercial part of this. Here's the bottom line. Uh, Sally and I are publishing this ourselves because we don't want to give it to a publishing house. I want to be able to have a personal, lengthy conversation with every person that I sell this program to. And I also want them to know and call me at any time. And some have called me and said, but I've kind of run into a little bit of a thing here. Let's talk about that. That's great. That's awesome. I can't tell you what that means to me. I mean, it means a great deal to me to have those meaningful conversations. Um, And so I probably could do it more cheaply um, if I went to a publishing house, but I have decided that we just go to good old Staples. And uh, actually, it's actually turned out pretty good. Thank you, Sally Reedy. I mean, she's, she's really gifted in that way. And it's actually turned out pretty good. So, uh, they're $50. The mentor's guide and the worksheets are 50 bucks. The only thing I'm asking is, is that you not make copies of the mentor guide. 
that's my intellectual property, and I'd appreciate it if you did not make copies of that. But you can make as many copies of the worksheets as you want, because maybe you're maybe you're mentoring three people. Well, then make three copies of the worksheets. I, I really don't care. And we've sold fifty copies, and right at this point, we've broken even. So um, I love break even. It's it's awesome, but. I did not bring any today to sell because I just not want this to come across as some kind of sales thing. If you're interested at all, we've got a Facebook page, and I've, I've not been able to spend the time developing it as much as I want to, called Mentorship on the Run. Please like it so that you can get the posts um, if you're interested. But um, it begins with a contact with me, whether on Facebook Messenger or, or email or however you want to contact me. But I would like to have another conversation with you. So we have a 30 to a minute to one hour conversation about the whole material. And I'm going to, I'm going to be very careful the way I word this. I may or may not send you the material. Because if I don't feel... Can I just say that every pastor in the Church of the Nazarene should not be a mentor? Is it okay to say that? I, I hope that doesn't come across wrong. But um, I don't want I don't want to put a loaded pistol in the hands of somebody that doesn't know how to handle a gun. Can I say can somebody say amen? amen. Okay, but I want to be able to have that conversation so that I know in my spirit this is a person who's ready, who gets it, who has the gifts and graces necessary to take someone under their wing and walk with them for the next five to ten years. That's huge for me. And so that's why we're going to continue to publish it in this way. Maybe control is not the best word, but I, I feel better in my spirit knowing that I've got a little bit of control here over the material. Okay? And so that's the thing. Call me, and if you want, I'll mail it to you. And we're good to go. You can send me a check. Some people have not always sent me checks. I'm praying for them. Um, because if they don't send me that money, they are going to hell. You know that. So... <laughs> He was kidding, and yet he wasn't. <laughs> so thanks. This has been fun. I appreciate the privilege. Thank you so much for inviting me to come. And I want you to know, if you want to call me, uh, please feel free to do that, because there's not many things I enjoy talking more about than mentorship. So thanks a lot. All right. Hey, a couple things I want to bring to your attention, and then we'll close with just a few thoughts. Is the other teaching church happening today, or did it happen last week? Last week. Yeah. So that's uh, that's a cool thing to acknowledge that um, we are one teaching church, but we've got um, two places on our district. So we're one part of it, and there's another part that's happening on um, the eastern part of our state. So that's and there's, cool... there's been some Northern Virginia pastors who started talking about doing something up that way. Wow. Mm-hmm. Even Northern Virginia is getting saved. That's good. <laughs> hey, let me tell you the upcoming dates. You, uh, of course, have them on your calendar. But I'm going to tell you a little bit of what's planned for 2020 for Teaching Church. I'm really excited about. Basically, do this four times a year. We do it kind of twice in the fall and then twice in kind of the winter, early spring acknowledging that once you get to Easter and then summer, it's a little bit harder to play in with other district events. But our upcoming, our next one will be February 6th, so following the holidays and the new year. Um, we'll plan on meeting here again on that day. I'll tell you a little bit more about what that day is going to look like. And then uh, we have March 19th as the two dates down for Teaching Church in uh, early 2020. We'll have the other dates too. The reason I tell you about that is because uh, if you want to be engaged in leaning into 
teaching church in February and March, there's a little bit um, that you're going to want to know ahead of time to be able to come prepared and engaged in the conversation. been talking to uh, Todd for several months now, uh, Todd Thomas, about the book that he wrote. Some of you already have it, and um, he didn't come today to sell books. Uh, I did buy a couple of them, but I love the title, A Life in Contrast, but it's a book that he wrote on thoughts from the Sermon on the Mount. And so I've asked him uh, in February to come, and we're going to have uh, about 45-minute dialogue um, about Sermon on the Mount and some good truths that he's found. Some of you that uh, have read are reading this. You're going to be able to be a little bit more engaged in the conversation. Um, you may not want to. I mean, you got enough books, you know. Todd's okay with that. You can still be his friend, you know. But I would just encourage you, um, if you want to be a little bit more engaged, you can buy it on Amazon. Um, I've got ten more copies showing up here at the church, so just talk to me. You can get it. You can show up at his church sometime. Um, and uh, they're $15 is what, you know, he went like this. So you could barter, give him like $12 and a chicken or something. And you can, <laughs> you can no. use the same check that you don't send to Buddy. Right. <laughs> so um, I'm not doing this to I'm not getting a cut of what we It's just um, anytime, in the same way much of what Bud's done, any, anytime somebody has dedicated this much time and energy and thought, I think we benefit from just hearing from him. And so I've enjoyed it. You can use this as a devotional book. Um, there's about 36, 39 points. Um, each one is about 8 to 10 pages with some reflection questions. So I've been working through it, but I plan to continue working through it. And so, yes. We're going to use it at CFCN as our Lenten devotional guide. We're encouraging all of our people to buy it. They're Lent. And using it as their Lenten devotional That's guide. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. So... Um, just encourage you. And so when you come in February, we'll talk more about it and uh, you'll be able to engage a little bit more. Also in February, I'm really excited. Uh, Cameron Dunlap, who's from our Roanoke First Church. You may or may not know Cameron. He's been on the district now for a couple of years. I've asked him to come and I've gotten to know Cameron a little bit. Um, he is newer on the district, but I just was fascinated in hearing more about uh, his ministry context there, specifically kind of being uh, in a more urban area, and what he's learning and how he's really trying to journey and bring his church to not just be a church that's located in the community, but be a church that really ministers to its community. And so I'm really looking forward to that conversation because I think no matter where we are, um, our churches have a responsibility to be uh, students of our community and to know to know our community well. And so I'm really excited. I was talking to him this week, so he's going to be here in February too. Uh, in March, I'm really excited uh, because we're going to do um, a whole session on the Enneagram. Now, you may have no idea what that is, but it's, well, it's been around a lot longer than recently, um, but most recently became popular and more well-known by a guy named Ian Cron, who wrote the book, The Road Back to You. And um, Enneagram is, it's really a system of personality typing, which as soon as I say that, some of you are like, oh, I don't want to do that again. But um, I think understanding yourself and understanding the people that you minister to and minister alongside of is so critically important. Um, I actually don't think it could be more important. And so um, the roots of the Enneagram goes back to the desert mothers and fathers in the 4th century. And so um, this is not a mystical you know, it has good solid roots. And it's good stuff. Some people read it and say, huh. Eh. Some people read it and get it. And so I've really found there's been a lot of millennials in particular 
that are really engaged in this. So uh, I'm going to invite us on March 19th. So you can, I, I mean, this is like the day of books. I didn't realize we'd have so many here. You, you can get the book uh, ahead of time and read it if you want. Uh, but on that day, we're going to do a really basic kind of understanding of the nine different personality types. We'll use some really good resources. You won't be overwhelmed, but I think for those that are interested and want to go deeper, you can. Uh, but it's going to be a really good day for us to understand ourselves better. be a great day for you to consider bringing some of your team, some of the people that key volunteer roles that you work alongside. It's helping me understand my wife better. And isn't that worth showing up for? Just so you can understand your spouse and uh, the pastors around me. So anyway, uh, I got nothing to gain by doing this other than it's interesting me and something that God's been showing me. So, uh, but yeah, I look forward to February, March, some of the conversations we're going to be having. So come, great group today. Thank you for being here. And I've got one more thing to share before we go. I always want to leave you with uh, some practical things. So uh, I want you to take a minute, because it just will take you one minute maybe to reflect. I want you to think in terms of the holiday season that we're uh, in the midst of. And, and I don't have to tell you about that. You've already, in churches, ministries, you've got plans and things, maybe more things coming out of your ears than you wish you did. But if you were to make a list today, I would have you do it around the table, but we don't have a lot of time. So just for a minute, if you were to make a list of some do's and don'ts, not do's and don'ts as it relates to your personal shopping guide for Christmas or what to make, not to make, get the family, yeah, not that stuff. When it comes to ministry philosophy, when it comes to big picture ideas about how you approach this time of the year, this time of the year that... Um, I'm really glad that we talked a little bit about the new reality, because doesn't that come into place uh, when we enter into the season, especially Advent? Um, We feel like sometimes we're in a culture war where uh, we're kind of fighting for Christmas to be relevant and to not just be commercialized. So within that, there can be a temptation, uh, you know, as Pat, we can get a little bitter, we can get a little, you know, but um, I think to be good stewards of the day and time in which we're living to be appropriate ministers because um, Jesus must feel like um, that we've got something to offer because we're still here. He hasn't come back yet, which must mean that he still needs us and wants us to reach the world in which we live. And so because of that, uh, if you were to make a do's and don'ts list, I want you to think for just a minute of your philosophy. Maybe it relates to your area of ministry. Maybe it's something you've learned by doing some things wrong. Maybe through some trial and error, if you were to develop kind of a philosophy for a minute of do's and don'ts, what are the things during this coming, you know, four or five weeks in your ministry context that these are the do's, these are the most important things that have to happen, and then what are two or three that would be, I I read um, lately, Andy Stanley, somebody, they keep a notebook at their church, and one of their churches, it's actually a physical notebook of things they will not do. Now, that, that kind of sounds like a weird faith thing, but in other words, it's kind of things that they've learned over time. We're not going to do, you know, God's not called it, or we, this hasn't worked. Or, so they want to be reminded of not just the do's, but the don'ts. We're not doing that again. Um, so for just a minute, uh, a couple of people share. I'm, I'm going to end with a few kind of tangible ideas. I didn't ask you to prepare anything. Give me two or three. I didn't give you a lot of time. I know it's late in the morning. Everybody's tired, ready for lunch. But give me two or three of your dues. What is critical during these next few weeks? That worship, right? I, we get it, right? That, but, but what is critical for you when it comes to how you structure, how you plan um, during this time of the year? What are two or three really critical dues on your list? Somebody share one. 
Interest relationship. Relationship. Tell me more what that means. I think that we need to, because of our culture, yeah, and because of everybody doing this, yeah, you know, that we've yeah. lost that that touch, right, face to face kind of thing. And so, I mean, I think that's beneficial for us as families, as churches, yeah. as communities. But I think it's even more uh, beneficial for us as our relationship with right. Jesus Christ. Right. You know, we need that face time with Jesus as well. So, kind of re-emphasizing, especially during this season of the year, relationship and the links that He went. To right. Him. Yeah. To enforce that. Right, to give us relationship. Yeah. yeah. You were going to say something? Mine's kind of a subset of his, where there's certain individuals who are probably more likely to get lost and left behind during the season. Mm-hmm. And those are people I'm going to intentionally make sure that. So for you, see, yeah. These three people are going to be on my list. Yeah. For you, no matter what, you know, things are happening. You've got some people on your radar that you're going to touch, yeah. maybe physically. You know, you're going to get hug them, and you're going to, but you're going to make sure that they're not invisible. Yeah. That's good. A couple more. I'd say, uh, speak and model hope. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Hope. That's good. Hmm. Anybody else? A few years ago, somebody uh, engaged me on this topic and asked me if I observed or celebrated Christmas. <laughs> yeah. and it caused me to think because I immediately said I celebrate it yeah. but it kind of challenged me to think about what it might mean if I observed it Yeah, I just don't even know what all that means yeah, but it it's makes deep. me think it, yeah. it makes me think yeah. Yeah. I think I want to observe it Yeah, but anyway yeah. I don't know Yeah, that's good. I just throw it out there and let y'all finish it <laughs> yeah, good a couple more this is good stuff live joy Live joy. Yeah, live joy. It's on the top of your list of do's. Yep. While we are trying to make everything look beautiful and trying to present a really, um, appreciate the beauty of the season, that you should also appreciate the mess that God gives us. Hmm. And, I mean, you just came into a pretty messy situation. Right. Yeah. Embrace some of the imperfection and the mess. Let's do the other side. Maybe this is easier. You can take everything that you put in the do and make it a don't. I get that. But for sometimes it's easier to think of it this way. What's on the top of your do not list? Now, it starts personally, but it probably should leak into how you how you minister, how you structure, how you plan. Uh, so what is the top of your do not list over these next several weeks of ministry? Maybe this is a little more vulnerable than the first one. Yeah. I was going to put it on the other side, but it can be Yeah, yeah. Don't get caught up in the world in Christmas. Yeah. I had a woman call me the other day asking for help with Christmas. In our conversation, you know, she'd already spent $500. She was on three other lists. If I wouldn't have stopped, I could have gotten pulled into her mm-hmm. need to be extravagant with her kids. Yeah. And so I had to step back and talk with her about Christmas. Yeah. And not go well. Yeah, that's good. I'm making notes. Do somebody else. Do not overcommit. Yeah. <laughs> Do not overcommit. Tell me more about that, wise man over here, who I can ask more. That's my dad. I can make him say more. Um, <laughs> tell me what that means to you personally, but then how it how it impacts you as a church because it's both. Yeah. Being intentional, uh, for going with some of the good stuff. So that you can do the best. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's time management. Mm-hmm. Do you feel like that as a church too, though? I mean, you feel that 
we're trying to influence. Yeah, good. It's good. Along that line, we we have canceled a lot of things in December. We've canceled our Sunday school in December. We've canceled um, our well, Wednesday night children's activities. We've canceled Thursday night youth activities. Uh, so in doing that, we're making more room for, for the way we were. It is we're making more room for family. We're making more room for you to personally celebrate Christmas. And so uh, we're just canceling those activities during the month of December. So our folks that usually by the time those who are all those that are working in those areas, by the time they hit December, they're kind of tired anyway. And it gives them a break, allows them to practice Sabbath. We use Sabbath language in regards to those ministries. So that has that's kind of dovetailing what you just said. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we will not um, forget that Thanksgiving comes before. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So we have a huge uh, family Thanksgiving service, Love it. meal yeah. together, and it's not sort of mm-hmm. like an outreach or anything, but we share together this meal yeah. and a service of Thanksgiving. Kind of reclaiming it, right? We do. Yeah. We won't I love let it. it be. Black Friday comes it's out. It's not a speed bump on the way to, <laughs> <That's> right? right? <laughs> yeah. Feels like that. But yeah. It's good. One more, maybe? What should you do not? I won't engage in petty confrontation. Wow. Ever? Or especially during the Christmas. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I'll engage you guys. Yeah. January 1st. Sign me up. Back uh, on. Yeah. yeah. Anything else you can say about that? Well, I see it all the time. I, yeah. you know, I, people yeah. come to me and say, you know, the cashier over at Walmart yeah. didn't yeah. tell me Merry Christmas. They just said, Happy Holiday. Yeah. Right, right, right. Right. I said, just stop. Yeah. Right. Just stop. Yeah. They meant you well. Wish them well in yeah. return. Yeah. 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 The word that keeps coming to my mind, and it didn't come to my mind until after I was listening. I think we have a responsibility during this during this season, yes. Amen. and I, I, we can't run from it. And I, I get that we feel you know we're living in a worldly, non-Christian, post-Christian. Um, in some ways, we should stop being so surprised. We should stop being you know the Starbucks cup years ago where it was just red and it well you know I was like give me a, what are we what, what are we doing like we're I, I, you know, I, I love God-fearing people that want to, I love that, you know. But in some ways, I think um, we get so up in arms this time of year, and we want to, but I, I think we're, we should be responsible. We should be responsible that God has placed us for such a time as this to minister to our community. So what does that mean? I think we have a responsibility in love to help our people slow down. I think we have a responsibility in love to help our people pick and understand what is best during this season. And so some of my do-nots are try to do everything. And um, I think we sometimes feel like, especially at Christmas as a church, we have to. Uh, we have to meet every need. We have to provide every program. We have to do every. And I just think it's crazy. And we believe it's spiritual and we believe like it, but I just think it's crazy. And so I'm finding a lot of freedom in the things that we don't do during Christmas. Um, so that we can have margin. To, uh, this year, more than ever, I really want to encourage our people to slow down. Um, we're going to put more cookies in the lobby. Stop. Eat a cookie. Look someone in the eye. Talk to them. Right? I mean, this is crazy stuff that years ago you would think, why are we? Um, but I just think we have a responsibility. And we, we have a responsibility to do it first, to live, live it out first. 
and to help our people see it. Um, a few practical ideas I'll leave you with that um, may or may not be helpful to you. Um, some of the circles of, and you get some of the same emails and thoughts, but um, some strategies that people are using this year um, to minister to their community in a new way. In, in some ways, it's not too late to utilize some of these things, but one of the things I loved is they talk about when you design your kind of your outreach, your ministry focus this Christmas season, design it for your community, not for your members. In other words, if you just plan a gathering for Christmas or Christmas Eve, whatever it is, and all the members of your church, which, look, we're called to care for the members of our church, but it's just a good thing for them, then we've really missed an opportunity. And one idea was, what if you brand your, whatever you do around the holidays, what if you brand it around your community, not your church? So if, you know, if you live in Berryville, what if instead of promoting your church services, what if your entire, you know, focus this December is, you know, come celebrate Christmas in Berryville with us. Um, in other words, we have a responsibility to help our community celebrate Christmas well, and we're going we're gonna to do that. We're gonna, it's a mentality shift. It's not just about our church, but it really is about how can we come alongside our community, not um, condemning, not scolding, not, um, but, yeah, how can we help our community embrace Christmas? Uh, I thought this is, I mean, this is practical stuff, you know. Some people are experimenting with multiple service times. You may not, you know, be busting with the seams, but you may choose to do multiple Christmas Eve services because you want to engage different people in your community. And you may find that having smaller, intimate gatherings are a better way to serve your community and engage your community. So you may may choose to do that. Um, I think that's a great idea. Another practical idea was give, this is not like profound stuff, but it's important. Give your uh, congregation invitation tools. Um, The most recent statistics says 82% of people would come to church if a trusted friend invited them. But 2% actually do. 2% of Christians actually invite someone. So if nothing else, during this season, we're responsible. And we have a responsibility to invite, to help others. So put tools, I mean this is not, no one's never, not heard of this before, right? But... Let's give our people tools and resources to invite. And, you know, this is a season where more than ever people are open um, to the message of the gospel. Another practical idea, and we've done this some here. I know Pastor Sam's done this a lot in the third service, is tickets, free tickets. Um, it gives a sense of kind of ownership. This is your ticket. We're saving your seat. Um, and it gives a kind of this opportunity that I'm being invited to something. Another was, you know, love your community well. And so I think we are trying to figure out how to do that well here by having a focus and not necessarily meeting every need. But people want to lean in and they want to support. So maybe as a church, decide what your focus is going to be and really have everyone lean in together and see, you know, how how much of an impact we can make by not every Sunday school class doing their own thing or every small group or every, but what can we do as a church together? And maybe we say no to some things to really do Uh, one thing well. Um, There's other things too I could see here, but I just thought maybe it would be an appropriate way to end, not to burden you, not to send you home with more things that you gotta, um, maybe to give you some permission, maybe to give you some freedom this Christmas. Um, But I think we have a responsibility. And I I think it's a a divine responsibility. We're not doing it alone. The Spirit is with us. But I think we have an opportunity um, to engage our world differently. Let's pray. God, it's been a good day. It's been a good day to be in the room. Um, Thank you for leaders. Thank you for mentors in this room, uh, people that have poured into my life. 
Thank you for uh, a district, Lord, that we don't do what we do alone. You haven't called us and invited us to be just our church on our corner in our community. But, Lord, uh, on days like this, you give us a bigger picture of the kingdom. And so thank you for our corner of the kingdom. We're, we're going to take responsibility as Nazarenes for what you've called us to do and who you've called us to reach. We're not the only, the only ones. We know that. But we thank you, Lord, for, um, for our gathering and our denomination and our leaders and our churches. And so we just pray across our district today that you would give unity, that you give favor, Lord, in the weeks ahead. We pray uh, for favor as people uh, invite and as we have the opportunity to share the gospel in powerful ways, Lord, I pray that we in your church would be faithful, that we would be responsible to the message that you've entrusted us with. We have the greatest message, the greatest story. Um, we've been entrusted with it, Lord. And so I pray we wouldn't feel guilty. I pray we wouldn't feel overwhelmed. I pray even you would relieve stress. But I pray we would feel responsible um, to love well, to serve well, um, to speak of hope and joy, the things that we've heard. And um, Lord, I pray that uh, whether we're observing or celebrating, wherever we find ourselves in there, I pray that you would help us not to miss uh, what you want to do in our hearts this season. Thank you uh, that you are still in the business of interrupting our lives. That's, that's really what Christmas was on that day. It was a, it was a divine interruption um, to nearly everyone, most that weren't looking. Mary, certainly a divine interruption for her and Joseph. But Lord, all these years later, you're still in the business of breaking into our mess, of interrupting our schedule, our routine, what we have going on, Lord. And so today, uh, we choose to acknowledge, yeah, we are thankful. We give thanks today. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.